Well, Jesus has invited us to take up the cross and follow him. And let's study together out of the Bible what the nature of that cross is this evening. Uh, a woman was suddenly stricken with uh, blindness, and while she was lying on her bed trying to make sense and meaning out of her tragic plight, her well-intentioned pastor came by to comfort her and said these words, Dear one, God has laid his cross upon you. Now, I wonder how you would feel if someone told you that a misfortune that came upon you, in her case it was blindness, uh, that came to you, it was a misfortune, certainly she didn't invite it upon herself, but if you were told by your pastor that this was a cross that God had laid upon you, maybe you would be tempted to feel resentful toward God for interfering with your plans for your life. I don't think anyone in their right mind would volunteer to choose uh, sorrows as a cross or heartaches, which are common to humanity. And I think very often we have thought those things to be our crosses, sorrows and heartaches. But the cross which the Savior bids us bear, he invites us by our free will choice to receive that cross, just as much so as Jesus chose to take his cross, and he chose to do it willingly for us. No one would choose to become blind, would they? No one would choose to be lame. No one would choose to have open-heart surgery, would they? No one would choose to be in a financial strait, as you've mentioned. No one would choose to be in a condition as your niece is in right now. But that's really not the cross that the Lord lays upon us. He, he offers a cross to us that he desires for us to choose of our own free will. We want to know what the nature of that cross is. It's good for us to, to bear some of these burdens that we've been talking about cheerfully. And such patient endurance comes, however, short of what we're going to talk about this evening, and that is the principle of the cross as Jesus taught it. What is the core principle of the cross? You know, more than any of the other apostles of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul recognized the tremendous impact that Jesus' cross has on our human nature. Not only had been Paul been well-educated in Jewish thought, he had studied under Gamaliel, who was a Jewish priest, but he had also mastered the ideas of the Greeks' philosophy. And the startling idea of the message of the cross just struck Jews and Greeks differently. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, this is what it says. In verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ who? Christ crucified. And what is that? To the Jews, it's a what? A stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it is what? It is foolishness, isn't it? So to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. 
Now, it's not surprising that the Greeks saw the cross as foolishness uh, because unenlightened as they were with the wisdom that the Jews really should have shown upon them, should have given to them, uh, they looked upon the cross as foolishness. The Greeks had a word for self. And what do you suppose that word was? Ego, ego, not ego the waffle, but ego, E-G-O. Have you ever heard of egotism? Okay. Well, what do you do with egoism? What do you do with that, the big I? The Greeks didn't have the slightest idea what to do with the ego. So when Paul came along and he said that self must be crucified, no wonder that they considered it to be foolishness, see? They considered it to be nonsense. On the other hand, the idea of a cross was really repugnant to the Jews because they were blindly, though inexcusably, ignorant of a psychology of human nature. Now, at least the Greeks knew something about psychology of human nature because they knew about the ego, the self, but the Jews didn't. They were ignorant of this psychology, and had they seen the meaning of their own, the Jews, if they had seen the meaning of the, the temple services and the sacrifices and the, the, atone, the atoning sacrifices that were offered there, they would have recognized in those the atonement of Christ, because that's the perfect answer to the need of human nature, of the ego, around the world. I'm convinced that the ego is the one thing and par excellence that all cultures, all peoples have in common, and that is all of us have a big eye. Would you say that's correct? All of us have pretty big egos, don't we? Another word for it would be hubris or, or pride, okay? But unfortunately, you know, the Jews had before them an object lesson on how the big eye can be reconciled to God because God showed it in the tabernacle, how this psychological problem of the big eye could be reconciled to God, which is the atonement, atonement for sinners with God. But because the Jews themselves didn't understand their own tabernacle service, you remember that when Jesus went there when he was 12 years of age, he inquired about it. <laughs> he wanted to know what's the meaning of all of these services, of all these sacrifices. And the priests couldn't even give him a clear answer. And the Lord had to reveal to him what they meant. And that is that the Lord was really looking for a one human being who had a body who was willing to offer it as a sacrifice to God. And Jesus, when he was 12 years of age, he saw in those animal sacrifices, it represented him, and he committed himself to be God's sacrifice for the world. That is what would reconcile hearts that are alienated from God to him. Jesus dedicated himself at 12 years of age. Well, being familiar with Greek philosophy, Paul sensed... Uh, how sometimes the sons of this world, in other words, the Greeks, were more shrewd in their generation than the Jews, who were the sons of light, in that they at least were aware that human nature needed something which none of the religions of their ancient world supplied, 
The Greeks understood about the ego, but they didn't know how it could be kept in check. The Greeks were seeking after that kind of wisdom, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. But Paul recognized that the principle of the cross, in that principle lay the wisdom that the Greeks were vainly seeking, and which the unconscious repression of human nature has obscured. Well, nothing in the New Testament claims to be a full uh, systematic outline of the teaching of the cross, so much as Paul presented it to his audiences when he was an evangelist and he traveled throughout Asia Minor preaching the cross as the wisdom of God. And we have Paul's uh, letters that he wrote to various churches in which he shares his gospel of the cross. He tells us about it. And uh, it is that message of God's agape love and the sacrifice of Christ that literally turned that world upside down and changed people's lives. So therefore, we find in these letters of Paul evidence of Paul's dynamic concept of the agape love of God. And a lot comes to light to show Paul's vivid idea of the cross. That's the only way to change the ego, the selfish human behavior. Let me share with you one text that's the real clear explanation of this. It's in Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 through 7. So let's go there. Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 through 11. It says, or do, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his, it says, his death, doesn't it? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his, what does it say, death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now notice these words, knowing this, verse 6, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, Paul puts this another way uh, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, and he says, I, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but it is Christ who liveth in me. And there he uses the term ego, I. I am crucified. Ego is crucified with Christ. So here, Paul presents the relationship between the, the psychological problem of the ego, the human pride, and the cross. It's crucified with Christ. So let's talk about this and how Paul terms it here as being the old, uh, our old man and the body of sin. The, the King James Version describes our old being as our old man. Now, that's the old man is not <laughs> the old guy you married. But it's, you know, some, some women say, he, you know, my husband, he's the old man. 
Well, that's not the idea here. The old man is really this ego, this I, that Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. A strange figure, this old man. Who is he? Well, is he Satan? Hardly, because Satan, is Satan ever going to be crucified with Christ? No way. And there's no way that God can force Satan to be crucified with him. Well, is the old man our sinful nature? Paul had another term that he used when he spoke of our sinful nature. You find it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. It says that, uh, well, let's look at it. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, calls it our sinful flesh. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's another way of talking about this body of death or body of sin, the ego. Okay? Obviously, there's nothing sinful about one's flesh that is in the sense of the physical body. Sinful flesh, if you look there in Romans 8 and verse 7, it says that the carnal mind is what? Against God. It's enmity against God, isn't it? So the mind has to do with the, the character, okay? And it's the, the sinful mind that is at enmity with God. This is that ego problem the sinful nature. Paul's original idea of our old man is more than what our sinful nature means. What he's talking about is not merely what appears to be bad on the outside. It may be what we would like to think is a good nature, unenlightened as we are concerning our true spiritual condition. And unless we're very careful, we might say, Well, this must be crucified, but that need not be crucified when in reality both aspects of our nature alike stem from a love of self. Some people have this notion, you know, that really the inside of me is really good-natured and okay, you know. It's just that I don't express that inner good nature in a way that's always appropriate, so I do bad things. And so therefore people define sin as outward actions, when in reality, sin is what springs from the inner heart, you see. And Jesus spoke about that, didn't he? And the inner heart is this ego problem. More specifically, it is the love of self, which is the root cause of it. It's like when you, uh, you know, and now we're getting all this rain, and my, the weeds are going to start springing up in my yard, And I start pulling on the tops of those weeds, and what do I get? I get a lot of leafy vegetation, but the root is still down there in the ground, and I haven't got the problem out, have I? And so it's just going to produce more weeds, isn't it, on the surface? And it's not until I get the root of the problem out of there that I'll solve the problem up above ground. And the same thing is true regarding us as human beings, as sinners. It's not just the bad things on the outside that's, that's the issue, but it's the love of self, the ego, that's producing it. That's the root of the problem. Our sinful nature is often thought to uh, be revealed in sinful acts, 
so that the crucifixion of the old man is supposed to consist only of killing off those acts of sin. Uh, You know, so I just need to mortify these bad things that I'm doing, you know, and, uh, you know, do a little house cleaning and everything will be okay. But that's not the case. The problem is deeper. Jesus taught that it is not only the outward act, but it's also the inner desire, the lustful act, the lustful thought, which is the sin of adultery. And cherished hatred is even before the act of killing. And so cherished hatred is murder too. And the sinful nature stems from the existence of the self or ego. It shows itself in a love for sin. I think David recognized this in Psalm 51 and verse 5. He said, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Sin is therefore not only what we do, but what we are. Sin is rightly understood to be a transgression of the law, just like 1 John 3, 4 says. And the word transgression there is anomia, which means uh, a hatred of the law, uh, lawlessness. And of course, if one hates the law, one is really hating God's character because the law is God's character. But it must be remembered that transgression is much deeper, as we've said, than outward acts. You remember that the first sin uh, was the cherishing of the ego or the I in the heart of Lucifer. That was the first sin. And the last sin of mankind that must be overcome is the same. In our search to understand who the old man is, we are perplexed by another term. What is this body of sin which is destroyed when the old man is crucified? Is the body of sin the same? as the sinful body. Well, we know that the physical cravings of our body are sometimes connected with acts of sin. Does that mean that the bodily cravings or instincts are themselves sin? In order to destroy the body of sin, must we continually repress our physical cravings? The body of sin is not the physical body, but it is the root or the source of sin. The old man is so important that once he is crucified, the body of sin or source and taproot of it is destroyed. Well, who is the old man who is crucified with Christ? Paul himself answers our question as simply as we can answer this equation. X plus 2 equals 4. What is the X factor? Can you figure it out, Sarah? X plus 2 equals 4. What is X? X plus 2 equals 4. How do you find out what the X is? What is 4 minus 2 equals what? 4 minus 2 equals 2, doesn't it? So X equals 2, doesn't it? Okay. So in Romans, in this passage that we just read, the old man is crucified with Christ... In Galatians 2.20, he says that what is crucified with Christ is I. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, the old man is simply I. It's simply self. And the today's English version, that's how it translates it, the, the sinful self. So to Paul, the truth was as simple and obvious as the sunlight. The love of self is the source of all sin. And self cannot be dealt with merely by punishment and beatings 
or even a little self-denial. It cannot even be ignored. It must be crucified. I am crucified with Christ, he says. Then, says Paul, the sin problem is solved because in dealing with the source or the body of sin, then we have dealt with its taproot underground. Pull out the root of a tree and the tree is dead. I have this uh, decorative tree that's been planted along the side of my house uh, 15 years ago, and then it was just a little seedling, and I thought it would never be an issue until four years ago I decided I needed exterior painting in my house. And I discovered that these saplings had grown up right next to that wall. And the only way that I could get to the wall in order to paint it was to chop down these uh, decorative trees. Well, I did that. And actually, one of them was blocking the gate to my backyard, one of those trees. So that was a blessing when I completely cut it off right at the ground level. Well, four years later, that tree has come right back up again because I didn't get the root out. (laughs) And it just, you know, it had life in there, and it just came up again, didn't it? Well, how is self to be crucified? You know, this is a, a, a psychological problem that only Jesus has the answer to. Because self is a psychological issue. We all have it. All races of people have a big eye. And only Jesus can solve this psychological problem. How is self to be crucified? Such an idea would have been worse. You know, here Paul is talking about this to the Greeks and to the Jews. And to the the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's absolute nonsense to talk about self-dying with Christ. Actually, looking at Jesus' cross is a demonstration of how self can die. Because Jesus has set the example of it here. Self can never be crucified by ourselves alone. You can never do it on your own. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. That's how it's done. It's always with him. In fact, for self to be crucified with Christ is as natural for the heart that believes as it is to say thank you to someone who does a gracious deed for us. And here we get back to the simple definition that we've read in the book Desire of Ages from Sister White, that you can say faith, you have faith if you have an appreciation for what it costs the dearest Son of God to die for you on the cross, on his cross. So having that appreciation, then it becomes easy for self to die with Christ because appreciating it means thanking him, thanking him, and having an understanding of the cost of his death for us on the cross. So the way of the cross is not difficult so long as we behold the Lamb of God on his cross. It it is so important for us to see Christ crucified, comprehending what it means, and that leads to self being crucified with him. Jesus said this. Look at John chapter 12 and verse 32. 
John chapter 12 and verse 32. It says, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll read it again. John 12, 32. I, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, it says, I will draw all peoples to myself. Now, that's an astounding statement from Jesus' lips, isn't it? But he says that there is something in that demonstration of his love for the world that is going to attract everyone to, to the degree that they will make a decision of being either crucified with Christ or hindering it in their heart. And is it any wonder then that Satan, he wants to obscure the message of the cross, doesn't he? He wants to make it hazy. He doesn't want people to understand and appreciate the cross because he knows that if he can short-circuit that, that egos can just go on with uncontrollable, uncontrolled, you know, There'll never be a crucifixion of self at all. So Satan's favorite scheme is to envelop the cross of Christ in a hazy mist of confusion so that we cannot understand what happened there. And then he's going to be free to taunt us with the supposed, you know, it's impossible for us to bear our cross. What foolishness this idea of the cross is in our modern competitive world. How dare you crucify self in our modern 21st century world? I mean, there's nothing that you can do but to surrender to the common wisdom, to the popular, to the universal idea, which is love yourself. That's the universal message that's put out there by the world, isn't it? Love yourself. Enhance your ego and let it just grow and have confidence in yourself. That's the only way that you're going to make progress in life. Pamper yourself, then you can get ahead. Walk all over others, you know, because the self is the most important of all. So the enemy bombards us with this psychological message from all corners. And so that's why if the cross of Christ is hidden, Satan is right. Without the clear vision of Christ crucified, there is nothing that any of us can do but to live for self. If the cross of Jesus Christ is obscured, then the only thing that we can do is live for self. And that's why Jesus wants the message of the cross to be uplifted so people can see that he is the divine psychologist who has a remedy for this psychiatric problem that we have of the big eye, the big ego. Let Christ's cross emerge out of the mist. Let it become, as Paul says, the power of God unto salvation to all who will appreciate its worth. When we see the message of the cross, then there are no involved uh, difficulties or obscure processes of doing battle with sin as the method of God. His plan is simplicity itself. The gospel is simplicity itself. In fact, sin itself is as simple as a, th- a thing as God's remedy for the overcoming of it. Indulged self-love, love of self, kneeling before the throne of God as the anointed cherub 
who covers. Lucifer did not appreciate. He did not love the principles of God's self-denying character. His heart was lifted up, we are told, with his own beauty in Ezekiel 28, and his wisdom was corrupted by reason of his brightness. The original sin of Lucifer lifting up himself was he lacked any appreciation for the love of God, you see, and he he could only see himself. And this lack of appreciation of the character of God, that is what the Bible calls unbelief. Appreciating the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, that's what the Bible calls faith, genuine faith. It's the precondition. It's the precondition of the removal of the taproot of sin. From that root in the heart of Lucifer came all the pride and the passion of sin as we know it. So the old man that Paul's talking about here in Romans 6 simply is being this cherished I or ego or self. It dies with Christ when the love of God is revealed as seen in the cross. When we really see the cross for what it is as a revelation of God's love, then self dies with Christ. Christ has come then. When that happens, then Christ has come in the flesh, in your flesh. See? I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. You see? Galatians 2, verse 20. He meets our problem of life precisely as we find it. Directly from our given situation, wherever, wherein we find ourselves, Jesus' honesty and his purity and his selflessness and his love and his self-surrender, all of this led him to his cross. And Jesus takes the raw materials of your present life. Maybe it's a shattered marriage. Maybe it's a bad relationship with children. Maybe you don't get along with your neighbors. The root, taproot of all of our bad relationships goes back to me, myself, and I, and the love of self. And when I am crucified with Christ, that is the peace that begins and the resolution of all of our bad relationships. I give this as, by the way, I I like to counsel people out of the Scriptures. And I would see this as a basic principle in, in family counseling, in marriage counseling. If there's trouble, Jesus has the solution to it because usually the fight is over who's going to have control. It's me, me. And I'm not going to let him win, you know. And so when the principle of being crucified with Christ is seen, then love reigns and deposits of love are made in each other's bank accounts so that it grows and it strengthens the ties of love in family and in marriages, doesn't it? So it's a very practical thing in counseling with people. This is the Satan has introduced this whole problem of the love of self and it causes strife and division on all levels in society as well as in the home. Christ crucified is simply you crucified if you have that kind of love. If you had love, you could no more evade the cross than could he have evaded it. When you see that he has come in your flesh, that is, he has taken your place in your particular situation at this moment, you can see how love is set straight on the collision course of the cross. Sunday morning, I woke up, 
And my wife said to me, honey, would you vacuum the floors? Well, you know what ego says? (laughs) You do it. (laughs) But you know what God's love says? Yes, honey, be glad to do that. You know, and so that's what I did. The first thing out of bed, I went downstairs and I vacuumed the floors. (laughs) And you know something? I have learned in my marriage experience that Paul Penno dying with Christ is a wonderful marriage enhancer. It causes the ties to grow. If you have God's love in your heart, you are set on a daily course for the cross. Do you see the point? If you have God's love, if you have Christ living in your flesh, you're going to be set on the course for the cross every day because there are going to be many challenges to your ego. And how will you respond to this? You will respond as as Jesus would. No to self and yes to others and love to others. It is God's love is selfless, It is uh, constantly giving to others. God never thinks of himself. He's always giving himself to others. He is the greatest lover and giver in all of the universe. As readily as you say, thank you for a kindness done you, your heart responds with a deep sense of contrition. As you see how much everything you owe to Jesus and his death for you on the cross And by saying yes to the little common duties of life, you're saying thank you to Jesus. I appreciate that you died for me on the cross. I appreciate your love that you died for your enemies. I want to express that love to others around me. So all of your petty self-love stands revealed in its ugliness in in view of the cross. Just as in ultraviolet light, all of the motives of your heart suddenly appear different from what you ever saw them before. What you have seen in that light is the real you. The cross shows you the real you, the you that is without love. A light shines from the cross that illuminates your soul in the floodlights of heaven. And you see yourself as the beings of the unfallen universe look upon you. And now it seems that every Uh, Sinew and cell of your being stands out saturated with that sin of self-love. You feel as if you want to hide your face. But as this strange light of love bathes your soul, every little root of pride and self-esteem shrivels up. The sense of guilt that rises in the heart would kill you outright were it not that Christ already bears that guilt on the cross, His cross, And so you are never crucified alone, but you are crucified with him. You live, but nevertheless, the old man dies. Your love of self, your pride, your smug satisfaction with yourself are shattered. Well, there's no better word for it than crucified. And you know, the Lord doesn't ask you to give offerings of penance, or he doesn't ask you to go on some expensive pilgrimage to some holy site, uh, to Rome or here or there. You don't have to beat yourself or starve yourself. No wearing um, sackcloth and, and ashes. No grim gritting your teeth to shake off an evil habit after evil habit while you tick off a checklist of assumed progress. 
He that has died has been freed from sin. And this is what we call the atonement of Christ. Christ has reconciled the heart. The the ego has died. The alienation has ceased. And this is the reconciliation, the atonement. The cross is the only thing in all of the wide universe that can make this psychological change with the ego. And so, um, this is really not unrelated to what we've been talking about over the course of the last couple of weeks. And that is, you remember the point that was talking about that uh, the atonement is not for sin, the atonement is for sinners. And if atonement means to be reconciled, to be at one with, then it's not a matter of God needing to be appeased and given an offering in order for his anger to be reconciled to to sinners. Because it is God who is in Christ who is reconciling the world unto himself. Do you see the magnitude of that? So God is not some kind of a petty pagan God, you know, that requires, is so bloodthirsty that he requires uh, the, the sacrifice of his son and its divine child abuse. He causes his son to take the hit in order to appease his wrath. That would be like bribing God. The Bible does not present the atonement to us in that manner at all. It is God who sacrificed just as much as his son did in sending him to this world. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Now, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is set forth as the revelation of his love to the world and to humanity. And it's for the purpose of reconciling our alienated hearts to him because we are the enemies of God as sinners. And so, the atonement is not atonement for sin. It's atonement for sinners. And, you know, the big, if you want to understand what the word sin means, what's the middle letter in it? Yeah. <laughs> it's the ego, isn't it? It's the I that needs to be reconciled. And sin is not, some, you know, we've looked at this topic now this evening, and sin, and you've all agreed with this early on, that sin is not just the outward actions. The big problem is the ego, the I, that produces, it's the taproot. For everything that's above the ground, as far as the weed is concerned, you get at the taproot, if it's crucified, if it's pulled out, uh, then psychologically you've solved the sin problem, and only the cross can solve that problem. So here's what I want to leave with you, and that is that God does not make an atonement for sin in the sense If the word atone means to be reconciled, is God ever going to be reconciled to sin? There's no way that God is going to be reconciled to sin. But God has given the sacrifice of Christ so that sinners can be reconciled to him. You see, the the atonement is for sinners because sin is not some kind of detachable thing you know, as an entity. It's who we are because it comes from our very taproot. Another way of saying this is that the false understanding of Babylon regarding sin 
is just this, that all you have to do is believe and you kind of just take this load of sin and you put the whole sack of it on Jesus and then you're done and finished with it, like it's some kind of an external weight that's burdening you on your shoulders, you know, when really the problem is inside. That's not sin at all. That's not the problem at all. So, the, the pagan notion of dealing with sin is just that. You know, I believe by this act of faith that I can transfer these sins to Jesus, and now I'm done and finished with it. Well, has the heart, has the alienated heart been reconciled to God? It's just been a mental act of, of faith, hasn't it? But true faith, which appreciates Jesus' death and the love that's revealed there for the sinner, that true faith reconciles the heart because self is crucified with Christ. See what I'm talking about here? So the sacrifice of Christ is for the purpose of reconciling or atoning for sinners. That is to bring them into harmony with God. God will never be reconciled to sin. The atonement is not for sin. Now, I did a little word study. This is, Henry and I have been talking about this, and Henry's had some good questions on this. And uh, in the word atonement is found in Exodus, uh, Leviticus. There's a lot of sprinkling of the word atonement in Leviticus, and also in Numbers, and one time in the book of Romans. And it predominantly has to do with an atonement for the people just like what we're talking about here. You may have one instance where it says atonement for sin, but sin is not something that's a separate entity from sinners, so you have to understand that in terms of atonement for sinners. See? Same way with Ellen White. Now, Ellen White has a number of statements about atonement for sin. That very phrase, she uses it, and she says we need to study the grand theme of Christ's atonement for sin on the cross. She says around this theme clusters all the rest of the themes of the Scripture. But Ellen White would not say that sin is something detachable from the sinner and can be arbitrarily forgiven without the heart being reconciled. So when she talks about atonement for sin, she's talking about the reconciliation of the heart that's alienated from God. So uh, I could I brought a whole, I put together on my computer a whole list of those statements. Uh, the scriptural evidence is really mighty clear, especially there in Leviticus chapter 16, that on the day of atonement, the atonement was to was for sinners, for the people, for the congregation. It says, and you can just read through Leviticus 16, and you'll have an example of that. And it mentions atonement for the people and for the congregation several times through that chapter. And it has to do with reconciling people's alienated hearts to him, which is getting at the taproot of the whole problem of sin. Well, we have a few minutes left here. If anyone wants to make a comment or has a question, uh, hopefully your pure minds have been stirred up here. Mm-hmm. 
See, Satan would love to have us think that it's a detachable entity from sinners because that's his notion of the atonement that he wants us to believe. So you can walk away from it and your heart isn't even reconciled to God, you know, because you believed and you got rid of it. Isn't that the way most people believe that forgiveness of sins operates? By the way, the word forgiveness of sins involves the remitting of sin, which is the whole problem of the alienation. And God gives for sin himself. You see, it's both a removal of the source of enmity and a replacement of Christ himself and his righteousness. And that's the reconciliation of the alienated heart. Forgiveness is not just a negative. Well, the sin is gone. But it's a positive. Christ comes in place. See? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking when you were talking about how you know there's three uh, categories of sins, John Bunyan uh, said it's proper. And there are Christian one that says, okay, the two have this backpack on them carrying the sin. Yeah. And when it comes to the cross, he kneels down and the, the burden of, of sin must like fall off. Well, I'd have to go back and read Bunyan. Um, but that parable more or less gives us the impression that it's, it's a big sack of bad stuff that rolls off, you know, down the hill, and now he's, he's gone with it, you know. And like it's some external reality apart from the person themselves. And sin is not a, a sack of bad stuff that we're carrying around. It's who we are. It's our character. You see, and the taprooted of it is love of self. And so the only way to get rid, see, the big sin is love of self, and love of self would murder the Son of God. That's the unknown thing about this whole matter, and that is whenever self reigns, then there's no room for God because self is God. <laughs> you know. So the only way to get at the taproot is I am crucified with Christ. Sin is the self. It's not some external thing that it can just be rolled off in a, in a bag. I know that it's awful easy for us to revert back to the old way of thinking, isn't it? Because that's just what we, what we call it, common... It, it's just the common understanding of what sin is, you know. And, and the, Satan has so confused our minds that these Babylonian ideas have, have begun to reign in us. But we have gone through here in prayer meeting and also on Sabbath mornings some of the major teachings that demonstrate clearly that Babylon is fallen, it's bankrupt, it's bankrupt so far as its understanding of the cross is concerned, so far as the atonement is concerned, so far as the Sabbath is understanding of the Sabbath is concerned, so far as its understanding of the nature of man is concerned. And uh, in, in every respect, 
Babylon is bankrupt. It's drawing on notes out of a bank that has become so inflated that the money is meaningless and worthless. Wouldn't you rather have a, a dollar that's worth a dollar? You have it in the truth of the Scriptures. And uh, it's very true that Satan has uh, done a big number on our Christian minds, you know. But uh, we want to get back to the Bible and the real truth. We want to know who the true Christ is and the true righteousness by faith and not the false Christ and the false righteousness by faith. All right? What would Jesus do? And, and Jesus was motivated by this love of his Father, and it led him on a daily uh, journey of saying no to self, didn't it? Jesus was constantly denying his will, that his Father's will might be done. And it led him on a daily course of being crucified, crucified with Christ, and then it led him to the ultimate cross, didn't it? All right, well, thank you for a good discussion here. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you this evening that we can explore sincerely and honestly as we want to know what the truth is. Dear Lord, we, we know that our experience follows what we believe in our minds, what you convict us of in our hearts. And we want to know the truth uh, regarding what the message of the cross is. It's the message of crucifixion with Christ. It is the message of true faith appreciating the cost that the Son of God went through in order to die for our sin. That becomes the grand motivator of all of our life. And I pray, Lord, for each one of us this evening that that we may experience that agape love in our hearts. We know that this is the beginning of psychological healing personally, as well as the relationships that are around us with family members and neighbors, as well as our community. It's a life that is hid with God in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.